The New Testament reading is from Ephesians 2, 1 to 7, which you can find on page 568. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of, our, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So good morning. How are we this morning? So my name is Stephen, and I am the pastoral resident here at Christ King Church. Uh, this morning, as you saw in your bulletins, today is the day of Pentecost. Uh, that means that it's the 50th day after the day of Easter, and it commemorates the descent of the Holy Spirit on the apostles as well on the followers of Jesus. And I'll get more into that later on in the service. But you know that we started the sermon series the week after Easter Sunday, and so now we are in week seven of our All Things Made One series in the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians, it is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a church located in the westernmost part of Asia, a region that we refer to as Asia Minor. And the plan this morning is to simply pick up where we left off last week. Pastor Chad preached and taught us that Paul explained the power of God in the church as revealed in the resurrection of Jesus and God's gift of him to the church. Today, uh, in the next seven verses in chapter 2, Paul will draw our attention to the same power of God, but now as it is revealed in God bringing us from death and into life. So if you have your Bibles, just go ahead, go to Ephesians chapter 2 and put your finger on verse 1. Now as you guys are going there, um, how many of you, forwards? I'll step back, so... How many of you, if you guys were just walking on the streets and I came up to you and asked you, are you saved? I asked you that question, what would your response be? Saved from what, right? And that was my question. I was in the fifth grade, I was at church, I was in a youth group, and one of my Bible study teachers, who was just a few years older than me at the time, came up to me and asked me that question. And to be honest, I had no frame of reference for what he was asking me. I mean. Like, bless his heart, he was a nice guy, he meant well, and, uh, you know, I appreciate his bravery, but I just didn't know. He said, Stephen, are you saved? And I was like, and my response was, I don't know what you're talking about. Saved from what? Rescued from what? And I think it's because I didn't have a sense of any danger. You know, if you don't have a sense that you're in danger, you're not going to have any sense of urgency that you need a savior, right? Uh, drowning people call for a lifeguard. If you're in a house that's on fire, you call for the firemen, the fire department. If an intruder shows up to your house, you call the police, right? But if you don't know that there's a problem, then you don't know that you need to be rescued. Now, I know uh, Paul, being the great teacher that he is, he understands this, and so he drives the point right away. In verse 1, he'll say to us, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. 
Now, I know this sounds very negative, and it is. And I want to tell you that the backdrop of this verse is actually kind of positive. You see, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 says that we as a race, we are dead in our sin. But the backdrop of this is that God has created us good. We are created in His image. And so that's what makes us a bit shocking and offensive. We were created in God's image, and because of that, we are capable of good things. Uh, extraordinary acts of goodness, courage, and love. You know, we see that a man will take care of his wife in their old age. We will see people sacrificing their lives for their friends. Have you guys seen that movie Hacksaw Ridge, right? Where he goes and he saves fellow soldiers while in the middle of live ammo. I mean, there are enemies there. Um, and I see it right here in our church as well. You know, there are so many of you who responded to those who needed help. You know, coordinating and providing meals to families that just had a baby or babies, um, helping one another move to a new place, or even babysitting for families so that, or for parents so that they could have a time to themselves and have a break. You guys overflow with selfless ideas, and that's because you were created in the image of God. And that's one of the things, and that's one of the things that makes Paul's indictment in verse 1 a bit offensive. So it says here, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And it comes across offensive. And I want you to focus on two words in this verse that really dispels two very ingrained myths our culture has about evil. The first is the word you. In fact, this word is second person plural, so it means you all. So no one is left out, right? You all were dead in the trespasses and sins. You see, we all recognize that some people are bad, but the problem is we always think that somebody out there is bad, right? Whatever culture you're a part of, those who are on the outside of your culture, they're the bad guys, right? So we do this with nations. We do this with religion, you know, and that's why we have to rally up the troops to keep them out. Right? <coughs> Let me give you an example right here in our own country. If you were raised up in a, conserv in a very religious conservative area, you know, I, I know I was, then you often heard, you know, it's those liberals, they're the problems, right? It's the Samantha Bees, the Rachel Maddows, the ladies on the view except for that one blonde girl on the edge, right? <laughs> they are depraved. They're destroying family values and undercutting the backbone of our society. And of course, the ironic thing is that there are people on the other side, they're probably sitting around this Sunday morning thinking how bad we are. Uh, people in the church are judgmental, they're proud, they cause strife and war, and in a lot of ways, I think Jesus would agree with them. Jesus taught that religion brings out the worst in people. Religion has a tendency to make people proud, and that's basically the mother of all sins. Or we could put it this way, whenever there's a problem in a relationship, whenever you're in a relationship and there's a problem, and we say, what's the problem? It's the other person. We never say it's a problem. I have yet to he hear or see a marriage counselor complain about the fact that they have too many couples coming in and saying, it's, it's just me. It's not the other person. It's all me. We don't see that. So the first way this passage offends us is that it tells us that all the problems, all the dysfunctions in this world is not out there. It's right in the mirror. It's us. It's you. Second key word that challenges how our culture looks at sin is the word dead. Uh, this refutes the myth that sin is primarily something that we do rather than who we are. You know, most of us think of sin as some sort of bad act, right? You're hurting someone, you're, you're stealing, racism. 
But the word dead shows us that sin is not an action, but it's a condition of the heart. It's not that we do bad things that makes us bad. We do bad things because we are bad, right? We don't steal and cheat and that makes us greedy. No, we steal and cheat because by nature we're greedy. And in other words, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. The first three verses are a comprehensive picture of the human condition outside of God. Now, Pastor Tim Keller defines what it means to be, a sin, uh, to be sinful by describing it as being enslaved. I want you to notice, if you're still on verse 1, uh, notice the two times that the word follow is mentioned. It says it right here in verse 2. You followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And then scroll down to verse 3. It says, we follow the desires of our sinful nature. Now, let's be real. The word follow doesn't, it's pretty tame in the English language, right? It doesn't really come across with the strength of the Greek word there. And the Greek word, it really has this idea of being mastered. You are dominated. You are controlled by something. If you are in sin, the reason why it says we are dead to our trespasses and sin is that we are as helpless as a dead body. We cannot exert ourselves. We are completely enslaved. You know, in verse 3, it says that, and some of you guys are not going to like this, by nature, we are children of, of wrath like the rest of mankind. Yes, children who deserve God's wrath. Why? Because what we have done, what you and I have done, is treason. When we sin, it is treason at the cosmic level. We kicked God off his throne and we put ourselves there in his place. And in every possible way, we minimize him and we try to glorify ourselves. Martin Luther puts it this way, and he, uh, he was writing this when he, was kinda, when he was coming up with a description for sin when he was writing a lecture on the book of Romans. He said that the heart is curved in on itself. In other words, the heart is profoundly self-centered. It is so deeply curved in on itself that it viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. That's sin. So imagine this, and I know many of you guys have already heard this illustration. To be a sinner, according to the Bible, imagine you have this little computer in your heart, okay? It's at the very center of your heart, and it never stops. It goes on 24-7, and you know what it's doing? It's, it's constantly, constantly analyzing. It's analyzing your conversations. It's analyzing the people you meet, the events, and it's asking, and it's like, it all comes down to this basic question, what's in it for me? Everything is being analyzed down to how does this benefit me? How does this actually help me control others? How does this give me some authority? How does this give me a step over this other person? How does this make them indebted to me? Self-centeredness can lead you one of two ways. The first way, it could turn you into a cruel person. We think of all the notorious dictators and the tyrants who order the slaughter of millions of people. I think we would all agree that they were all very self-absorbed and self-centered and proud and egotistical, right? But more often, self-centeredness also leads to a different tract, and it's actually, it makes you incredibly moral. Think about it. If, if you have a large ego, and if you so, so desperately need to make everything about yourself, 
If everything is about you, there's no better way. There's no better way than to keep people indebted to you. There's no better way to control people than to be moral. So how do you know if you're doing this? How do you know if you're actually committing this? How do you know if you're doing this even as a Christian? Remember what Luther said. He said the sinful human heart is, seeks to use all things and it's caved in so it's self-centered so that even God, it uses God even for its own sake. So here's a quick test. When things don't go well in your life, when prayers are not being answered, you opt out. I don't want to be a Christian anymore. Why? Because I followed all the rules, right? I, I went to all the Bible studies. I read all the Bible study homeworks. I filled them out. I did my QTs. Why isn't God answering my prayer requests? Why aren't things happening? Why? Why didn't I get that promotion at the job? Because it was all for you. You did not get into Christianity to serve God, but you got into Christianity so that God can serve you. That's the only reason why your obedience and your practice was so conditional. You know, there's this fake biblical story told by Elizabeth Elliot, and although you won't find it in the Bible, I'm going to share it because I think it has a real cool point to it. So Jesus, he's with his disciples. He's walking along. They're going on this journey, and Jesus says, uh, I want you guys to go pick up a stone. So they go off to the side of the road, they pick up a stone, and they keep on walking, and once they reach their destination, Jesus like, it goes like this, and the stone turns into bread, and they're, all they're like, whoa, this is cool, and they start eating it, they're filled, they're re-energized, and they go back on their journey, right? And so they're walking again, and then Jesus goes, I want you guys to pick up a stone, and Peter goes, all right, I know how this works, so he finds the biggest boulder that he could find, right? And he carries it, and he lugs it all the way across, and they go on this long journey, and they reach their destination, and there's a river, and Jesus goes, toss your stones into the river, Peter gets livid, right? And Jesus points and turns to him and says, Peter, who were you carrying the stones for? The heart seeks to use all things, even God, for its own sake. So let's not deceive ourselves. So the first way that this passage challenges us, it tells us that all the problems, all the dysfunction in this world is not out there. It's actually right here. It's in you all. It's in all of us. The second way that this passage challenges us is that it refutes the myth that sin is primarily something that we do. Rather, it is who we are. Our condition is that we are in sin. We are dead in sin. But that's not where it stops. And it's at this pivotal point where we go to verse 4 and everything takes a shift. Let's read this together. Or I'll read it. You guys can follow along. But God, and let the force of that just kind of hit you for a second, okay? Like you are helpless, you are dead in sin, but you are not without hope. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, and let's just stop right here for a second. You know, many Christians, when they talk about salvation, it just kind of sounds cold sometimes. Do you guys know what I mean? It just sounds kind of distant, a little mechanical. Our salvation is bathed in tender love. You know, the reason, you know, sometimes the reason why worship has not exploded alive in your hearts is because you have not understood exactly how much God has had mercy on you. To realize we were objects of wrath, but He loved us anyway. Every page of the Bible is stripped with love and mercy, and you have to start to learn to read it that way. 
You know, unless our theology, unless our study of God's word leads to the worship, leads to the delight of God to doxology, we're doing it wrong. Let's go on to verse 5. But Actually, let me read verse 4 again. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. And notice this. This is past tense, and this is a reference to the work of Jesus. And this is just the gospel message here, right? That God so loved the world... God, being rich in his mercy, sent his son as a ransom to die for us so that those who believe will be raised in Christ, will be with him in eternity. Verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel, if you grew up in the church, you know that Jesus rose again on the third day. He was ascended and to the right hand of God, Father Almighty, right? you didn't, you might be asking, why to the right-hand side? You know, this metaphor kind of loses its effect on us today, but the original audience, they understood it perfectly. You see, back then, a conquering hero, if you went out into battle, you conquered the enemy, you were victorious, you came back, you got a hero celebration. You would come to the capital city, and where they would take you is to the throne's right-hand side. That's That's how people knew. So it made sense when the ancient readers saw that Jesus, because of all that, he had accom- that all that he had accomplished, was raised from the dead, was taken into heaven to the right hand of God the Father, that was the most honorable seat in the universe. And it says right here, we're seated already there in Jesus Christ. Let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, it's in the past tense. We are seated. So it can't mean that we're literally there because we're here, right? What he's saying is that we are legally seated there, legally, by law. You are treated as if you had done everything Jesus had done, so that now God delights in you, he honors you, and he rejoices over you the way he rejoices over his son. You might be asking, how can that be? Well, the answer is found in verse 7, the conclusion and the climax of this passage to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Just want you to review with me Paul's thought process from verses 4 to 7. He began by speaking of God's mercy and love and his plan to save sinners. Then he transitioned and drew your attention to the fact that he saved them. And then finally, there's a climax and he concludes that he is Uh, lavishing his mercy on sinners in order to display, in order to display his grace for all the ages to come. In other words, God acted to save sinners so that they may display his grace, the riches of his mercy, the, the surpassing wealth of his grace in kindness. In light of God's gracious saving work, we are called as believers to point men and women not to ourselves, right? not to our self-centered ways, but to point to the one who deserves all glory, the one who is the author of our faith, the one and true God. The glory all goes to God. And let me close with this illustration. You know, when I first uh, moved to Massachusetts, I'm originally from California, you know, I lived in the North Shore. And so every time I was in the city to go home, I would take the one highway to go northbound, right? Well, I met Sarah, I got married, 
Now we moved to Belmont. So every time I came home from the city, it was the same way, but once I got to the highway, no longer did I take highway number one northbound, I would have to take 93 south, right? Simple enough. But I don't know, maybe you guys are smarter than me, but in the first two, three months, not kidding, I would just instinctively, I would just end up going on the one northbound to my old house. Um, in the same way, what has happened since I have been resurrected with Christ? See, I was dead in my sin. And because of God being rich in his mercy, he lifted, he resurrected, I am rest, he raised me from the dead with Christ so that what has happened since I have been resurrected with Christ, I, I no longer live there. I live here. I know now. I used to walk down that way. That used to be my identity. No longer do I find it there. My identity is here, right? I used to drive down that road, but no longer I drive down this road. So when you see yourself acting the way you used to be, you have to renounce it. You have to repent. You have to cry out to God, God, help me. This is not the way I was. I need your help. I need you to be my strength. And believe that God has put to death your old self and that you are made alive with Christ. Cling to him. His kindness to us is immeasurable. Let's pray. Dear Father God, I pray for my brothers and sisters, my family members, God, that we would renounce our former ways, that we would be rerooted, God, that you would use us as vessels by your Holy Spirit's power, power, as fragile as we are, to shine light in dark places. God, may we lean on you and be dependent on you always. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.